Hello, and welcome back to the Album Files podcast. My name is Abby Mickey, and I am joined by Matt Deneef. Hello, friends. Exciting one today. Cannot wait. Yeah. Ian Chalo. <laughs> That's ominous. <laughs> Hello. I'm also excited about this one, so I'm, I'm really mm. curious to see how this shakes out for you, Abby. Um, yeah, before we dive into it, have you guys been listening to anything cool lately? Who's going first? Okay. I'll start with this one. Are we question for you, Abby? Before we continue, are we doing a, a bonus episode on Ed Sheeran subtract? Because if not, I'll give you some thoughts now, and if we are, I'll hold back on my analysis. Damn it, Matt! Because I, <laughs> now I want to know. But I also, you know, I personally would love to do a bonus Ed Sheeran episode um, because I think that talking about subtract would be really interesting. But I also think that there's a lot of interesting stuff in his earlier work that kind of ties into subtract that makes it a full episode's worth like an ed sheeran episode versus a subtract episode but that's totally up to you guys i mean that's like a lot that's a lot of listening and homework to be done and so i understand if we want to maybe not go that in depth or or just do a subtract episode or just rebrand to the discography <laughs> files yeah i don't know do you do, should we just vote I like that the the listeners are being being brought into the democratic process oh, of this podcast. It's for sure, just just really <laughs> pulling back the curtain here on how the, how the sausage is made. Just mixing metaphors there terribly. But anyway, the the the, uh, the short thing is I've I've been listening to subtract. I think it's good. Um, the production is so spare, so spare, so sparse on it. Um, songs are simple, but do well you, executed. Do you have enough opinions of subtract to make it a full episode? Uh, if I listen to it again, I will. Yeah, we can maybe hold off on that if you want. Um, but yeah, I've been listening to Subtract, let's put it that way. Um, I like that you've been listening to it. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention is, um, a YouTube channel called Sonic Boom. And it's a collaboration between two of the biggest, um, musicians on YouTube or YouTuber musicians, I guess you'd say. So Rob Scanlon and Andrew Huang, who are both big names in their own right. And they've combined to do this collaborative project where they get together and they do cool musical challenges. Um, so the first episode of that, they randomly chose what instruments they would play. They randomly chose a genre and they gave themselves an hour to make a song. And it's amazing. The second one, they looked at some album art from an album they'd never heard and they wrote a song that they thought fit the album art and then compared it to the original. Um, they're just super talented. Yeah, it's really good. Super talented musicians, um, great mates. They bounce off each other really well. Um, they also have a band called first of October, which gets together once a year on 1st of October to record an entire album from scratch in a day. Um, and they're just brilliant. So, and, and they're on Spotify. They put their stuff out. They're called Sonic Boom, their, their collaboration. And I, if you like watching talented musicians make stuff quickly and in a fun way, um, Sonic Boom are, are brilliant and well worth checking out. I, I want to just, I want to, I just want to, even if we do a full subtract album, I need to know now. <laughs> You did like it because because it's sad music, but did you not find it sad? Or it's do you sad. not want to answer this yet? Now I'm curious. Yeah, we, we can go into it in more detail in, in a, uh, a standalone episode if, if Ian's uh, distaste, judging by his face there, can be overcome. It's not but distaste. I, I, just haven't, I, I just haven't listened to it. <laughs> Yeah, except that it, except that the national and boy genius were both two against one with with you being the outlier matt and <laughs> so if it's flipped this time so it's me and you against ian then i think it's still fair yeah i'm i'm fine doing it i i just have zero background on on this album having never listened mm, to it fair. 
That could be a good reason. There's a whole Disney Plus documentary series for you. Yeah. I might watch that. Yeah. It's quite good, actually. Hmm. Right, so I'll hold off then. I won't say anything else about Subtract, and we can revisit that in more detail uh, sometime soon. <clears throat> this opens it up because I was like, I want to talk about this album so bad that I might just pick it as my album. And then I was like, but I can't do that because that's too predictable, for one. And also because there's, I made a list and I have like 15 albums that I want to pick. So. Whoa. It's not. Ian, what have you been listening to lately? I've been down the Tim Hecker rabbit hole, as I often am. Um, he's put out a new album, which I spoke about last time we recorded. And I've kept listening to Tim Hecker because it's really good working music. Uh, I've also been listening to King Woman. Uh, her album Celestial Blues, which came out last year or maybe the year before, is really, really good. Um they're coming to Australia in June, so I'll, I'll go and see her, them. I'm, I'm not sure if it's a band or whether it's just a solo act with a, a band company. But either way, uh, that's that's really cool sort of doom metal female vocalist uh, kind of tortured examination of religion and darker elements of, of human existence. So that's really good and at the opposite end of the spectrum oh sorry matthew go i was just gonna say that's right up your alley i was just gonna have a jab oh yeah no so much so (laughs) ignore me yeah um i've also been quite excited by the news about taylor swift releasing speak now re-releasing speak now so i've been listening to that album a bit and i think like front to back it's got some of her best songs on it it's just really really good I'm yeah, and it's like what eight eight new songs on the new out al- on the re-record. Yeah, I mean, there's there are there are a few skips, but I I think as a whole, it's just got some incredible songs on there. Um, so yeah, I'm really really looking forward to that coming out, and have been enjoying that album in the meantime. And just on Tim Hecker, I know you probably mentioned it last week, but can you tell us what kind of genre that is? I, I, yeah, you've told us before, but I'm just trying to remember. Uh, it's kind of ambient electronic sort of drone based stuff he he tends to shift styles a little bit from from one to the next so he has done an album with a icelandic choir where it's all sort of chopped up vocals and pitch shifted and and things like that that was really cool um he's also done some two albums with a japanese traditional instrumental group um again with like a electronic twist on that uh his newest album, uh, No Highs, I think it's called. I'm pretty sure it's No Highs. Uh, is with a saxophonist called Colin Stetson, who's done work with a bunch of uh, big artists, including Bonnie Vare. So it's it's kind of drone based with skronking bass saxophone <laughs> um, through it. So yeah, it's cool. No vocals. It's it's just instrumental what are you listening to abby <laughs> moving this along seamlessly <laughs> <laughs> as uh, as you could probably expect i've been listening to a lot of uh of subtract um like a lot like a embarrassing amount um but in in trying to pick an album i also have been so um i'm in montana at the moment staying with my parents and my sister is here 
and my other sister came to visit as well. So the the three of us were trying to pick an album together for us to listen to. And so we really dove down the rabbit hole of our lives into bands that we loved when we were teens and younger. And I'm not going to pick this album, but I've been listening to a lot. And that is The Coors in Blue. Um, (laughs) The Coors are a family band, a family Irish band. Um, I think their most famous song is Breathless, which is the first song on that album. But yeah, uh, we've been listening to a lot of them around the house and uh, it's a joy. It is nice music. I I have a very funny memory of um, The Cause as one of those times that you realize your teachers at school are humans. Um, In primary school, my my grade four teacher or something was just like uh, clearly just on a massive cause kick and was just like, okay, everybody just sit down for an hour and just do some free drawing or whatever. We're going to listen to this. <laughs> and we just listened to the Cause <laughs> album in full, which is not part of the curriculum, I'm sure. But it, it was just one of those moments where you're like, oh, okay, you are a human that has taste. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to pick this album. And then when I was listening to it, I was like, I don't think I have enough to say to pick it, but it's still just quality listening music. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't listened yeah. to it a great deal beyond grade four, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I have memories. Your, your taste may have changed since then, possibly. Yeah, perhaps. Should we talk about your pick, Silver Chairs Diorama? Matt, yeah, do you want to give us it. a brief why, why you did this? Yeah, for sure. Well, you talked a bit before, we both of you just talked about memories from earlier on in your lives and... Um, a big part of why this album is important to me is because it also has a bunch of memories attached to it. So it came out in 2002 and around that time, my dad was really deep into um, Triple J, which is a a youth radio station here in Australia. And um, this album got a lot of airplay on Triple J. So he bought the album and and then in the months and years that followed, basically any time we'd go on a road trip, we'd have this playing. So I have very strong correlations between listening to this music and, and those great road trips up the coast of the East coast of Australia and um, some very special memories there. But unfortunately for the music itself, my memory of it is me sitting in the back seat with the music down just low enough that I couldn't actually hear it all that well. And the road noise drowning out most of the spectrum of what I was actually hearing. So I didn't get a full appreciation for the actual music itself. And then, after a few years of that, it kind of just became background noise to me. So if uh, later on, I didn't listen to it for years because it kind of had that, you know, I never really enjoyed it after a point, even though I enjoyed those road trips, I didn't enjoy the music per se. And I always enjoyed their previous album, Neon Ballroom, quite a bit more. But then a few years ago, I decided to re-listen to Diorama and really give it some more time. And and I'm certainly glad that I did. Um We'll go into that in, in a moment, but I think it's worth a little bit of context on Silverchair and I'll, I'll just try and keep that as, as quick as I can. But um, Silverchair, for who, those who don't know, um, one of Australia's biggest bands of the past 30 years, maybe one of the Australia's biggest bands ever, potentially, um, started out three kids from Newcastle and New South Wales, just started jamming together in high school. Um, they were 15 when they recorded their first album, Frog Stomp, in 1995. And their sound was very reminiscent of uh, Nirvana. So very heavy, very grungy, raw. Um, In 97, they record their follow-up Freak Show. 99, Neon Ballroom that I just mentioned. And that was a real evolution from the band. They started, excuse me, they started moving from that 
grungy sound into more experimental, more orchestral, more, um, I guess, interesting music and more diverse, complex arrangements. But it was in 2002 with their fourth and penultimate album, Diorama, that we really saw that evolution complete. And it's kind of staggering to me that this album was written largely by Daniel Johns, the lead singer and guitarist and composer when he was 22 and 23 years old. Um, as we'll talk about some of the complexity on this album and the depth of it is, is quite remarkable. Um, in writing this, he sat down and had written eight tracks for what he thought would be the next album after Neon Ballroom, listened to them back, thought they sounded too much like the previous album, and then just deleted the whole lot, like recorded over the tape. So erased to history, uh, like most of an album of Silverchair stuff, which every time I hear that just kind of makes me really uncomfortable knowing that you put so much time into creating something and then be like, eh, don't like it. He said he didn't want to be able to fall back on that stuff later on in, in if he wasn't happy with what he came up with. So he deleted that, started again, worked with a new producer called David Bottrell, who'd done work with Tool, King Crimson, Muse, Dream Theater. So like some big prog rock bands. Um... And started work on Diorama. And it came at a time when he'd just come off antidepressants. He'd been on antidepressants for years. And he having suffered from depression. And he came off those and felt like this world of emotions came flooding back to him. And he felt inspired to write about the, the extra color that he saw in the world. And the excitement that he felt. Um, and you can really feel that and see that and hear that in the music that that is on Diorama. It's very... Um, fantastical and uh, bright and compared to the grungier stuff that that came before the darker stuff that came before this is a lot lighter um, and the result is something like um, art rock or baroque rock or uh, fantasy rock you might say kind of arty power ballads with some heavier moments that are very reminiscent of their earlier stuff um, and a key collaborator in this was a guy called Van Dyke Parks an American composer who did some string arrangements for three tracks on the album. Um, and he really helped to bring that vision to life and to make, to really make this what is a, a stunning album for me from, from start to finish. And I've got plenty more to say about it, but I've gone on for a bunch. So I'm keen to throw to you guys to, to get your thoughts and then I can jump back in at some point and tell you why this is a brilliant album. Well, Ian, you had like a pretty um, excited response when Matt picked this album last episode. So I kind of want to hear from you. I I would say that I also have memories of this album. I, I think that for Australian music fans of a certain age, Silverchair were to some extent like almost inescapable. Um, I actually don't know how well listened to they were outside of Australia. I've That's kind of a blank to me. I haven't followed their career all that closely and don't have a good insight into whether they were internationally beloved or whether they were just like this Australian thing that didn't really transcend beyond that market. Um, but in Australia, at least they, they, they were a huge deal. And this album was kind of my introduction to them. So I, uh, first came across it in 2002, 2003. I think I was a little bit late to it. Uh, I was introduced to it by my friend Pete, who I was in a band with and, was someone that I shared a lot of music with. Um, and it really struck me as different to 
the majority of, or different to my expectations of what a Silverchair album would be based on what I'd heard in the past. Um, and I think the more time I spend, have spent with it, the more my perception of it has reinforced that it is this departure from um, Neon Ballroom in particular. It had some really, really dark moments, uh, some songs about Daniel Johns, the singer's battle with anorexia, um, some really quite heartrending moments. So this feels like a distinct evolution from that. Um, and you can also see that visually there's like this, this transformation, the cover of neon ballroom is, is dark and neon lights. And it's kind of this nocturnal, uh, insular kind of thing. And then this it's the front cover is literally a doorway opening up into technicolor vibrant light. Um, so I think that even, even the cover cover art is kind of a metaphor for, for what the album brings. It's uh, much less depressive and closed in and much more wide eyed and exploratory. I really like this album. I, I think that it's, um, I was, I was trying to think about how I'd, sort of describe its place in the Australian rock pantheon. And I want to say it's like one of the, it seems like it should be regarded as one of the top 10 Australian albums of all time, but I actually can't think of too many other albums that are better than it either. Um, so I think it, it feels at least to me like a bit of a classic, but I, because I wasn't really switched into things at the time, I don't, I don't actually have a, good idea as to how well it was received by diehard Silverchair fans when it came out or by the the critical response. Do you have any insight into that, Matt? Yeah, it was received pretty well. I think there was definitely a, a good chunk of the Silverchair audience that didn't like it because it was such a huge departure from their heavier, darker stuff from before. Um, but in the end, it was received pretty well. I think like the Metacritic um, reviews are like 70% or something. So fine. But um, I think it's one of those ones that's been more highly regarded as time's gone on. Um, and as the kind of, as more distance has been put between Silverchair's earlier stuff and, and now being able to see this for what it is rather than just as a, a progression, if that makes sense, like rather than, yeah, just being the next step, right. Looking at it as its own thing. Um, and I think that's the best way to look at it really. Um, cause if you're coming at it from the lens of, I love heavy silver chair stuff, then there are moments for you on here, but it's, you're not going to get the most out of this experience. I don't think. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I think that, um, it's not an album that I put on all that often. I listened to it really intensively for like the first two, three years after it came out. So I, I think similar to you, Matt, a lot of this is kind of, this music is kind of really internalized. Like it's just become mm. part of, part of my life. And it's, it's strange and a little bit difficult hearing it with, with fresh ears because you can't totally. really separate, yeah. um, like your current perception from, from your historical per perception. Yeah. What, uh, surprised me a little bit about re-listening to it is that it's, heavier than I remember. Mm. I remember it as being more like twinkly and uh, fantastical than, than it was. Like there's some pretty, pretty heavy moments on here. Um, mm. I don't think that they're necessarily the, 
best songs on the album and it's not really representative of the whole, but there are there are definitely some some heavy moments which mean that it's not just like some art pop thing. It's mm-hmm. it's got some some muscle behind it. Uh definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice nod a nice nod to their earlier fans. You know, tracks like One Way Mule and uh The Lever are so heavy and could have been pulled straight off Freak Show or something like that. They they're just straight up heavy rock grunge. Uh yeah, great moments too, I think. Abby, I'm I'm dying to hear what you think. <laughs> I like I like don't want to tell you guys now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when I say that I hated this album (laughs) (laughs) with like every fiber of my being, uh, I put it, I put it on like the day after you picked it, Matt, because I was like, okay, sweet new episode, new music. I can't wait to get into it. And both of you were so excited about it. So I was like, it's going to be great. (laughs) And I got to song three and I was like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I tried (laughs) multiple times, like over two weeks to listen to the album in whole. And I really had a hard time. Um, yeah, I don't, I, maybe it's like, I had never heard of silver chair before. Uh, they, they didn't make it to 12 year old Abby (laughs) in, in, uh, Aspen, Colorado. So I, I'd never, I'd never heard of them, but I've never really been a fan of this type of music. And like, to me, I guess my least favorite songs on the album were one way mule and the lever, Mm. which, cause I just said, I said, no, please. That's my notes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Uh, and, and I wanted to like it and I listened to it a couple times in the last like five days and I just really wanted to like it because it seemed like you both really liked it, but I, it's just really not my, it felt like very, like, especially across the night you dive into it right away and it Mm. feels really grand. Like it feels like I, at the first time I was like, wait, is this a, is this a band or is this like a musical, uh, that, that. I've never heard of <laughs> that like you picked because it, it was giving like Phantom of the Opera meets like emo. Um, <laughs> and I, and I wrote like it's emo Broadway um, is <laughs> the vibe that I got. And yeah, I don't know. I just, it wasn't my, it wasn't for me. There was a couple of songs that really reminded me of other, other music that I listened to like as a teen, like, too much of not enough really reminds me of the Goo Goo Dolls a lot, um, who I listened to a lot as a teen, and uh, and like um, without you was like it felt like Evanescence the musical. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I just it wasn't for me. Was it mainly the heavier stuff that you didn't like or just even the artier, more fantastical stuff didn't really do it for you as well? I I felt like with there was a lot within each song that like really pulled me out of the listening experience and just made me like close my eyes and just be like, why is this happening? <laughs> like multiple songs, the song ends and then like something completely different starts, but it's still the same song. And mm. I'm just like, why is this, why is this here? Why is this happening? And, and it was hard for me to kind of like wrap my brain around that a, a little bit. Um, like across the night, the ending is just like totally threw me off every time. 
Um, and I think there's a part of me that maybe by in my younger self would have been like, this is cool. Um, but it was not 32 year old me, unfortunately. <laughs> and, um, and maybe a lot of that has to do with the music that I've been listening to the last two weeks. And like this slotting in to subtract is like, does not, the two do not make for good back to back listening experiences. So I feel like that's a really interesting thing in this project, because obviously we're not only listening to the album that we suggest each other for two weeks straight. We're listening to other stuff all the time. And I feel like sometimes we're going to pick an album that doesn't slot into mm. the other people's normal listening and it's just not going to work out. And I feel like that's, that's totally a thing that is going to happen <laughs> in this, in this experiment. Um, but yeah, the greatest view, I said, this is giving Linkin Park the musical. <laughs> so there was a lot of that going on for me. Wow. <laughs> really interesting. Uh, I didn't expect Sorry. you to... No, that's totally fine. I, I didn't expect you to dislike it that much. I thought you might find it a bit much based on how you felt about other uh, artier kind of things that we've talked about. But... Um, yeah, I'm interested. I'm surprised that that you found it as difficult as you as you did. Um, well, what's interesting is like it made me go back and listen to him, and and I I love that music. And and listening to them both, I was like, maybe I don't actually love this as much as I thought I did, even though I wrote a musical about it um, in college. <laughs> <laughs> because I do I do like like the grand. Hmm. Uh, very arty, like showy music in a certain context, and I guess like my my current lifestyle is not that context. So if I if I could like change where I am in life and listen to it, I might have a different response. But this is where we are. You are right that it clashes with Ed Sheeran, like in terms of the the complexity of what's being written, like the. The songs on Subtract are very straight up and down, very simple uh, song structures, whereas the songs on Diorama are incredibly complex in their arrangements and go to some very strange places and some very surprising places that I think can be quite jarring if you're, I don't know, expecting something simpler or wanting something simpler or whatever. Um, So, yeah, I totally see where you're coming from with that. Um, but there was, but like, I, it's interesting. Cause I feel like, like with the Guillemots episode or album, um, mm. that we listened to that one took me a bit to get into, but once it kind of like cracked the, what I had expected, I guess, and, and made its way into my brain. Like, I love it. I've gone back and listened to that album. Um, so I feel like there's the, this, it's not like it's something that I'm never going to touch again. Hmm. Um, but it was definitely a struggle for me to get through it the last two weeks. Yeah. I think the time that you are in when you, when you receive something like this is important. And I, I think that that's perceptive. I, I think that with the Guillemots, it's more like a, um, linear songwriting style. I mean, it's still got the same Mm. kind of flourishes and things like that. And I think also to an extent fun, um, that also has some of those orchestral flourishes and a little bit more of that injection of, of other stuff into 
a more conventional song structure. Uh, one of the things that makes this album really interesting to me is that there's because it does because within songs there's all of these sort of distinct little movements there's distinct pre-choruses choruses bridges all this kind of stuff which sound on, on sort of early listens a little bit disjointed maybe i think that one of the strengths of this album is that in every song there's like one moment where i'm just like holy shit this is incredible like it's it's a album constructed of of songs but more specifically it's an album constructed of moments and i think those moments are what make the album really really stand out beyond just like the song start to finish if that makes sense um just like vocal lines and harmonies and little flourishes throughout the song which i find pretty incredible um mm. I, I think that's the real real strength in this, but maybe it takes a little bit of repeat listening for the, those sort of things to reveal themselves. I'm curious how many people like heard this album and became fans of Silverchair that hadn't listened to them before. I didn't really go uh, go forward or back too much in the discography of Silverchair. Like I, I listened to Neon Ballroom, and I think it's good. I think it's you know, re- really has some good moments, but I don't think it's as strong as Diorama start to end. Um, didn't really listen to the album that came after this, which was their final album. Um, what's it called, Young Matt? Modern. modern. Young Modern. Young Modern. I I don't know if that... <clears throat> I, I, I don't know. I haven't listened to it all that much, so I, I don't know whether it recaptured any of this kind of... A little bit. Magic? It, it was actually... I think it was their biggest album by quite a bit because it was much poppier. So they kind of progressed again to slicker, more, um, yeah, poppier production, I guess. So like Straight Lines was from that album and that was their biggest song ever and just an absolute mega hit in Australia and probably beyond as well. I I don't know, but you hear that everywhere still. Yeah, right. I I didn't love that song. Um, you don't need you don't need to be sorry. Yeah, this is good. It's good to have different perspectives. It'd be a lot less interesting if Ian and I were just gushing over this for forty five minutes. But there is more gushing to come. I, I still have more to say. Please gush. I want I want you to like tell me why this album is amazing, so that next time I listen, because this has happened multiple times on this podcast, where like you tell me why this album is amazing. And I'll go back and listen to it with a different perspective, and I'll be like, actually, you know what? This is amazing. So. Okay. Tell me. Tell me why. Sell sell it to me. Okay. Well, I think just to pick up what Ian was saying uh, about melodies there, I think one of the things that really stands out to me is how good the vocal melodies are throughout. And as complex as everything gets, as back and forth as it is, as meandering as it can be, Daniel John's sense of melody is just impeccable to me. And there are, you know, like Ian said, so many good moments where the soaring vocal lines and the melodies just hold it together for me, even on the heavier stuff. I think it, just brilliant. Um, I asked you guys specifically to listen to Tuna and the Brine quite carefully. Um, and I would implore any listener that's listened to this now that has the ability to, to pause this and go and listen to Tuna and the Brine and then come back to do that. Hi, welcome back. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> This song, I think for me, 
is the emotional high point, the songwriting high point, the everything high point of this album. And without trying to be hyperbolic, like to me, songwriting doesn't get any better than this song. I think this is absolute out of the park, 10 out of 10. Um, Again, mixing metaphors horribly. Apologies. Um, It's the song that Daniel John said he was most proud of on the album, and you can you can see why. Um, It's almost six minutes long. Takes you on this long, twisting, turning journey between different sections. There's no real sense of a regular song structure. There are some repeated sections, but it twists and evolves throughout. Um, The orchestral arrangement. Um, from Van Dyke Parks, who I mentioned earlier, you know, he's done work for the Beach Boys. Um, it just really lifts this in a way that is quite remarkable. Um, have you guys heard of Frison? F R I S O N. Is that that feeling that like uh, tingling down your spine, down your arms, in your neck, tingling in your body when you hear something amazing or read something amazing or something that just really grabs you and you get that kind of like shivers or whatever. Do you guys get that with or music? Or watch your husband in the breakaway at the Jiro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something we can all relate to. Yeah. Um, do you guys get that feeling when you listen to music? Are there yeah, moments? Sure. Yeah. You as well, Ian? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a thing. Apparently it's not, uh, not everybody gets it, um, but... Those of us that do, I think, are very lucky because it's uh, adds an extra dimension to stuff. But for me, this this song gives me that feeling more than any other song I've heard. Um, the The final two minutes twenty of the song, it, the song almost stops and then comes in with that queasy, almost queasy acoustic guitar line with the the string section over the top, and it's really off kilter and it makes you feel kind of uncomfortable. And then it slowly builds, slowly builds, and into this amazing soaring vocal melody that every time like every time i listen to that i just get these full body chills and and then it goes up and expands again chills again and then somehow after doing those two steps up and resolving this journey it still manages to find two other levels beyond that to close out the song and then back to the acoustic riff that closes it out and i think just the to be able to write something like that is incredible, but also to be able to do that at 22 is just staggering. I don't, don't know how. Um, the guy's a genius, basically, is what it comes down to, I think. But um, I I think that's a, an absolute masterpiece, that song. And I think uh, well, I'm very curious to hear what you guys thought about that one in particular. I I also have vocal line at the end is ridiculous, exclamation mark. I, I think that as the... Uh, like the construction, the construction of that song is so impressive. But I also think, like the actual mechanics of it, just the way that it shifts back and forth between major key, minor key, like it doesn't really resolve in a way that you would expect it to. It just moves from through these different movements, all of which uh, stand together or stand individually as quite impressive but it doesn't seem like similar to to one of those songs on uh the lizzie McAlpin episode that we spoke about like you can it doesn't feel disjointed when but you you 
can't work out how you get from A to B. But mm. it's it's just a testament to the power of the songwriting that he's able to bring you on that journey <clears throat> to B, C, D, um, without it without it feeling like it's just got sort of bolted on. I think that that's really impressive. I I think that the um, orchestral arrangements are incredible on that. Oh, so good. Uh, and I I haven't really listened to much of that sort of classic rock kind of stuff that Van Dyke Parks is best known as. I was familiar with him for his work with Rufus Wainwright, who also does similar kind of orchestral kind of pop stuff, a little bit more cabaret kind of <laughs> vibe. But uh, but I was familiar with his work from that. But it it is pretty impressive the way that the orchestra on this song and on Across the Night and what's the other one? My favourite thing? Uh, not sure. He's, there are three, he's on, three songs? Yeah, he orchestrated three, but then Daniel Johns and another uh, composer arranged string sections for other songs right, as well. Right, okay. Yeah. I, I think that for someone that's only been on three songs or contributed to three songs, it has such a lasting impact on the album and on the perception of the album. It feels like it's like his kind of fingerprints are all over it, even if they're not. Mm. I, I think that that's pretty impressive. What did you write down for this one, Abby? <laughs> Go on. Um, I said it's like Phantom of the Opera, but bad. <laughs> oh, wow. No, I, I think actually what you're saying about the orchestral parts, like that throughout the whole album, that was one of my favorite. I feel like that was those were parts of the the whole thing that I was able to kind of pick out and enjoy that those moments the most. Um like I I think he's a very good singer but but I have never been a fan of like screaming in music. And um and and I also couldn't quite discern like the words that he was saying, like it was hard for me to listen to the actual lyrics because it just came through as gibberish. Um, but, but I feel like this, this was one of the songs that I disliked the least. I mean, I didn't <laughs> high praise. Indeed. I, didn't com- <laughs> I didn't completely hate this one. Um, and, and yeah, I'm excited to listen back through it. Like with both of what you both just said, but I did really like the, the orchestral parts for mm. sure. And in Across the Night as well. So it, I like that the same guy did that for both because it ties together in my head, I guess. Hmm. You you made a point about the lyrics feeling a little bit um, like gibberish. I, I think that they are abstract to the point that they're almost indiscernible at, at times. Yep. I think that there's there's not really actually all that much that you can grab onto and be like, oh, okay, this is a feeling that I can relate to. Like one of the biggest choruses on the album begins, you brighten my life like a polystyrene hat. And like, I, I don't know what the message is to take from that. Um, or you're the analyst, the fungus in my milk. Like, okay, cool. Yeah, that really, that was, that was like mac and cheese on the pants. That was like, <laughs> oh God. Yeah. So I, 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 I do think, think it's a weakness. Yeah, 
Well, I, I don't know if it is a weakness necessarily, but it. Uh, I I don't know a lot about Daniel Johns's lyric writing process, so I. It could be that they're heavily cloaked in metaphor. Or it could be that he just likes the sound of the words and how they they fit together. Like Harry Styles. <laughs> Have you ever listened to music from a sushi restaurant? That song makes no sense. <laughs> just a collection <laughs> of of vowels and consonants. It's just like, can he get by on his sex appeal alone by just throwing words into music and <laughs> dancing? Is the answer yes? Yeah. <laughs> she says with regret. He won album of the year for that album. Yeah. Like <laughs> I don't know, I'll tell you when I go see him in July. With Tom's. <laughs> yeah, bring your husband along. Um I just on vocals and lyrics, I yeah, I there isn't a lot to grab onto. That's a good way of putting it. And I think it is kinda hard to work out what's going on, but I think his vocals are just so good. His range from the beautifully tender through to that caustic kind of raspy yelling that he does. I really enjoy that range and I really enjoy the heavier stuff as well. And I, I think having that depth to your voice and that range to your voice at such a young age, of course he was doing it years earlier as well. Um, yeah, just very impressive. And uh, I've spoken about this a bunch in previous episodes, but the dynamic range of this album really appeals to me. The fact that there are, so many shifts between heavier moments and lighter moments. Um, I feel like I need that in an album to kind of get me through. If it's too one note, it loses me a little bit. So this going from those grungier moments to flights of fancy with orchestral sections uh, really benefits the listening experience for me. Would you agree, Ian? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I... I think that sometimes it gets a little bit whimsical for its own good. Like in Tuna in the Brine, there's this high sort of backing vocal thing that's going, tempt me, tempt me. Um, <laughs> and I was like, ah, it's, it's a little bit like uh, like a magical pixie down the bottom of the garden. And I, I think that some of those kind of moments, re-listening to it where you're sort of having a critical eye as opposed to it being something that you've, known and sort of had just just accepted for what it is for the last 20 years i think that that's uh, an interesting shift um yeah i i i was trying to think of how to or what to compare this album to and i can't really think of too many sort of direct comparison points it it seems like less like a, a grunge band and more like Beach Boys or Beatles when they're in their most eccentric sort of phases, <laughs> or um, or maybe like the ambition of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, like that kind of sense of scope and um, mm. sprawl and subverting expectations when when Smashing Pumpkins went in that direction. Um, I don't listen to a lot of grunge. I don't particularly like it as a genre, but I I think that this is as effective as it is because it does move away from from those sort of preordained styles. I think also to go back to Neon Ballroom, um, Emotion Sickness, the opening song on that album, 
yep. is quite an important sort of ancestor to this album in in the way that it has those orchestral flourishes and some spectacular sort of piano playing on that album by David Helfgott, I think the the pianist that was in that was played by Jeffrey Rush in the movie Shine, which I think won some Oscars or, or something like that. Eccentric troubled genius, basically. Um, so he played piano on that that song. So I, I think that those kind of uh, tendencies towards like reaching out beyond that genre are evident in Silverchair's work in the past. But I think on this album, it is quite clearly resolved into a sort of whole package that sticks together. I I would also like to mention uh, that weird thing that bands did in the heyday of CDs, where they just tack say, on a, yep. a little little sketch yep, at yep, the end yep. of like five or ten minutes of silence um, to keep people, yep. you know, spinning their discman. <laughs> I thought it was broken or something. I was like, why is it silent for so long? I was like messing with my volume control. <laughs> like I was like, I don't understand. I like put on the I put on headphones. I was like what is going on here? Why is it? So I'm glad that yeah. that wasn't just me losing my mind. No, it's, it's definitely uh, an artifact of a bygone era. Yeah. I, I don't think anyone's doing that anymore. No. <laughs> such um, a, such a strange thing that we did. Well, I'm glad that that song wasn't 10 minutes long. Yeah. I think that weakens it. Listen to it 20 years on, but you can't really blame them. But I, I think you mentioned this earlier, Abby, the, the little flourishes at the end of a couple of songs, could probably do without those across the night and without you um and yeah that final flourish on the final track they're fine but i i think you tighten the album up if you remove those yeah i mean it's now along mm-hmm. across 11 tracks so it's a it's not a not a small undertaking yeah now uh, if you cut out the five minutes yeah five of minutes silence, of <laughs> 52 minutes actually <laughs> Um, I'd just add that there's a a really cool behind-the-scenes um, short film on YouTube um, by, I guess, people associated with the band. I think it came out on, like, a deluxe version of the CD when it was released. But you can easily search it. Um, yeah, I think it's, like, The Making of Diorama or something. Just, yeah, it's about 55 minutes long and just a really nice look behind the scenes of how they made it and the process and working with Van Dyke Parks and working with um, the record label and the back and forth and and just seeing how young they were. It just still staggers me how they're able to make something like this at such a young age. That is pretty incredible. Like, fourth album in their career and something that is that is this complex at 22 mm. years of age, like what the hell was I doing when I was that old? Like, <laughs> yeah. It has that vibe, doesn't it? <laughs> it just it's... makes me feel like I've wasted my life. I was writing a musical, so... Okay. Well, when at we least one, of, one of the three of us is pulling their weight. But, man. <laughs> just In to... what form does that musical exist, Abby? Is, it, is there music? Is it... Can we listen to it? Um, it's a whole script, actually. Oh. With music. Cool. Can we do a bonus episode on that? Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, just on Silverchair as well. I, it's to me, it's a real shame that they don't exist anymore. I would love to see where they'd gone. They they disbanded after their next album in two thousand and seven, and 
yeah, two of the the drama um, Ben Gillies. So the name just left me for a second. Ben Gillies and Daniel Johns have had like a pretty public falling out. They're kind of slagging each other off, or slagging each other off in the media, back and forth over the, over the years and. Um, it's kind of a shame because they definitely had more good work ahead of them, I think. And even though Young Modern kind of went in a direction that, you know, wasn't for diehard fans of the band, they had plenty more good work in them. And Daniel John's solo stuff and in recent years, his latest album, Future Never, is excellent. He did some really good stuff um, with the collaborator Paul Mack on a band called Dissociatives, which had some very good moments as well. Um, but yeah, just to as you said, Ian, four albums by the time you're 22. It's a shame they didn't do more because they would have done some good stuff. I think that uh, on the the sort of breakdown of the band, Daniel Johns has had some public problems Mm. uh, in, in recent years. And I think that's kind of sad to see. He had a drink driving episode, uh, Mm fairly recently, a year or two ago. Um, yeah, and one years earlier as well. And his marriage with Natalie Imbruglia broke down. Uh, that's probably a while ago now. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. Ben Gillies, he's um, sort of become absorbed into like the the reality TV kind of bubble. His, his wife is one of the real housewives of Melbourne, which is probably not where you expected the silver chair drummer to end up. As, as kind of an accessory to that that show. Um, she's also a professional psychic, and I think there was some anti-vax kind of stuff floating around. So I I, I think it's cool. it's kind of interesting to see how the how people grow and how people um, evolve as people as well as musicians. Mm. I Daniel Johns is clearly the sort of creative mastermind behind this album um and i think that his newest solo album has some really really strong moments his his moves are sort of more in this sort of electronic and i don't know pop direction and it still shows that there's this core of incredible songwriting behind behind his work but yeah i i I think it is sad that silverchair have broken up but also when when you've produce something like this where do you go from there yeah to Broadway <laughs> maybe <laughs> I'm sorry I'm sorry I'll stop <laughs> shall, do you want to rate shall it shall we rate it mm. yeah Ian do you want to go first uh, eight and a half for me I I really really like this album I think that the only knocks on it I don't like One Way Mule and The Lever as much as the the rest of the album. Um, I think they're kind of, they stick out. They, not that they're bad songs, but they uh, just aren't up to the standard of the rest of the album for me. And yeah, I think the, the level of sort of abstraction and sometimes whimsy feels a little bit forced, but I, I think as a exercise in songwriting and a series of incredible moments throughout the album. It's it's pretty remarkable. Matt, uh, nine out of ten for me. That's no, okay. Cool. Nine out of ten for me. I 
was kind of flitting between nine and nine and a half for this. I, I just adore this album. And yeah, I think the lyrical abstraction is maybe for me a downside. Those little vignettes at the end of songs kind of detract a little bit for me. Um, but otherwise, I find it very hard to find fault with this. Uh, I just, yeah, I love it. And I'm so glad that going back and listening to it 20 years later, uh, it still holds up. You know, it's still, I still enjoy it. Or I enjoy it more than I did um, back in the day. And that's really good because oftentimes when you go back and revisit things from earlier, they don't hold up. So uh, I'm very glad this does. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I give it a 0.8 out of 10. A um, 0.8? <laughs> Is that wow. the lowest score yet? Oh, yeah. I thought I'm we'd so hit the lowest. Is this album thought- worse than Jackson Jackson? Yeah. You gave that what? a 3. Because that one... Yeah, because Jackson Jackson was fun to listen to, at least. Like, it was, oh, man. That's upsetting. There, was, <laughs> there were songs in Jackson Jackson that I really enjoyed. Um, if Love Your Life had been two minutes shorter, I would have liked that song. But it really dragged on. Um, I'm so sorry. Wow. <laughs> I'm give it a point out of the den. Point eight. I'm stunned. I thought you'd... Wow. I'm about to make you guys even more disappointed in me. Ready? I heard this stereotype the other way, after the other day about Australians, and I just want to like ask you guys about it really quick. Oh. I heard you guys like really hate meringues. Like you what? hate meringues so much that you boo at them. You boo meringues. Ah. Uh, oh dear. Oh. <laughs> 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 that's uh, that's something. That's, that's certainly something. Is that a good joke? The the only yeah. person on the podcast that is not a dad has the dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I heard it from a dad. Right. It has dad fingerprints yeah. all over but it. But I laughed when I heard it. Yeah, I was bad. about to jump to the defense of the meringue. I was like, nah, meringues are great. <laughs> Pavlova and it's great. Cool. Well, I apologize, but I'm really happy to hear what you guys have to say. And I'm actually really looking forward to go, going back and listening. I feel like that happens to me multiple times when we talk about albums and I either appreciate them more than I did because sometimes I've liked the album but like Lizzie McAlpine I went back and I was like this album is one of the best albums I've ever heard in my life um so yeah yeah I think the key the key if I sorry I'm not I I don't want to instruct you on how to listen but try and find the moments rather than trying to find the like the the sense in the whole yeah so I don't know that's that's where the strength of the album is for me at least yeah, I think I'll definitely go in with that in mind. Before I tell you guys my pick, um, my cousin had an idea that I thought I would float to you. And I can cut this out of the actual episode recording, or I can leave it in, because I thought maybe talking about it would be fun is this, to hear. Is this Mo? Yes. Hi, Mo. Hey, Mo. Yeah, they Thank love you. our podcast. <laughs> Friend of the podcast, Mo. Uh, yeah. Um, so they were thinking that it would actually be really cool if we included listener audio clips at the end of each discussion or at the end of each episode about the previous album so that listeners can chip in with how they felt about the picks, uh, the albums that we picked um, and kind of be part of our part of our crew. Send in like little audio clips to, to our Twitter or to us and yeah, have a say. Love that. I don't mind that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it sounds pretty fun. I, I do like yeah. when there's there's that kind of dialogue because I, I I don't know if it was just because it was 
my album that I brought last week, but there seemed to be a lot of people commenting on on the Frightened Rabbit uh, stuff, whether whether on the Escape Collective Discord or in DMs and stuff. Like it's it's pretty special to hear how uh, music that you love also impacts on other people and how they have experienced that music in their own in their own lives. So yeah, I'm all for that idea. Okay, cool. I'll um. I know that there's a way to set up like a website that you can record an audio clip on the website. Like it's how NPR does their uh, political podcast opening bits. So I'll work on that and then we can talk. We all link it in the next episode. But I thought it would be super cool to have people chime in. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Have you not decided? Have you still got a list of 15 there? I still have a list and... Um, I had four albums that I wrote down and I was like, okay, it's going to be one of these four albums. And then I started like going through and, and then I was like, cool, I have the album that isn't actually on this list. And now I'm, I'm having second thoughts. Matt's lining up a a 0.8 in vengeance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, okay. So, all right. This is not the album that I had an album that I had on my list of albums. And I've, just have very low expectations for how this is going to be received but i can't help myself i choose for my album the 1975's being funny in a foreign language okay okay do we have to i don't think it's gonna blow your minds but i'll at least enjoy listening to it for two weeks (laughs) (laughs) do we have to limit our uh analysis to the music or can we comment on the lead singer's uh personal life as well do we want to (laughs) dive into like separating the art from the artist (laughs) i was partially joking but it might might be worth doing at some point (laughs) no you're right it it might be if we ever have to talk about kanye west i won't allow it (laughs) yeah that's my pick i feel good about it cool look forward to listening very good thanks so much everybody for listening and we'll be back well who knows at least in two weeks (laughs) talk about the 1975